Many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stop talking and just stare at the radio. It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it, I love that song so much. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. I didn't have a dad, as you know, so I had this thing called a donut. A donor is when they, a man delivers spam into the hospital, into a little container, and then they freeze it so it's all fresh, and then they give it to the woman's two women that can have, that want to have a baby, and then they have the baby. And we did that, and now I'm here. You just heard from Gus, one of the stars of the film Gaby Baby. It's a film about the lives of kids whose parents happen to be gay. And I've got the film's director, Sydney's own Maya Newell, in the studio with me today. Hello, Maya. Hi, nice to be here. So you guys were premiering your film at film Sydney Film Festival last night. How do you think it went? Were you looking around at the faces, seeing the reactions? Oh, our, our premiere is on Friday night, actually. Uh-huh. So we've got that um, coming up. And yeah, I mean, we, we had our world premiere over at Hot Docs Film Festival last month and I'm just so excited to bring the film home. Um, all of the kids who are in the film and their families will be there at the premiere um, and one of the families is even flying in from Fiji for the event. So, yeah, it's going to be pretty special. Okay, so it's an absolutely beautiful film. I had a gander. Thoroughly recommend anyone seeing it if they can. And um, like Goss was saying just a second ago, a lot of kids of gay parents have a responsible spam donor, as he put it. So we've got the first track of the show, and why do you want to bring this one on? Sure. So, I mean, just as a little side note, um, I spoke to Gus, who is now 13 years old, and he was, and I was like, oh, you know, what are you worried about in the film now? And I was thinking that he wouldn't want to talk about sort of gay parents and worried about backlash, and here I am having this big sort of crisis, and he was like oh, but I'm just going to be teased for my whole life about saying spam instead of sperm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, if that's your worry, then, you know, I think we're fine. Oh, um, I'm sorry, Gus. I've already started the teasing. <laughs> I know. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, it raises a really interesting um, topic, the spam and the donors, because, you know, our families, same-sex families, are created in so many different ways. Um, you know, there's adoption, there's surrogacy, there's IVF babies, there's donors, there's known donors. Um, and for me personally, so I, I was raised with two mums as well. Um, so this is a personal story, um, I suppose, the film for me. And part of, I suppose, the beginning of my conception um, is that I have a Japanese donor who who contributed very kindly to create our family um, and he's a lovely man. He's a, he's a friend of my mum's. Um, and the song that I wanted to play, I suppose, is a song that I discovered when I was over in Japan recently, um, which I just love. And it's actually bizarrely a French band who <laughs> sing in <laughs> Japanese. But it still reminds me of, of this trip when I first um, went to meet my donor as, a, as an adult. 
um, which was, you know, a really wonderful experience. He has a wife and a child and, um, you know, he's just an incredible man and I'm so glad that he decided to help us out. Um, So, yeah, have a listen and we can chat more about it afterwards. Isn't that adorable? On FBI 94.5, you're listening to Out of the Box. My name is Ash Berdebez, and my guest on the show today is Maya Newell, who is the director of a film called Gaby Baby. And uh, on the surface level, this is a film about four kids, each of whom have gay parents. But I kind of reckon that you know, after a few minutes, you start almost forgetting the premise and just getting start getting wrapped up in these kids' lives. Was that something you were doing deliberately, or does that just kind of happen? Yeah, I mean, completely. I think that one of the big points about children growing up in gay families is that our identity is not entirely defined by the sexuality of our parents. You know, as much as this is a film about kids with gay parents, it's a film about growing up and about how to traverse oncoming puberty, um, which is a universal story really about for all of us. Um, And that was sort of the intention of the film. You know, I think that too much gay families and children in gay families have been kind of you know kind of 
the ball in the middle of you know debate and all these things which means that the stories that come out are about fighting for our rights or you know about kind of um, everything of who we are is defined by our parents sexuality and um, we wanted to make a film that sort of filled that middle space and allowed to tell the stories which are about you know sitting around the dinner table and you know singing out the window of a car on the way to a holiday or having a fight and you know all those things Um, often kids in gay families they have this you know, we're like poster children, right? So yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure there to actually make sure that people don't go, well, that kid's not doing very well, therefore gay families are bad. Exactly. And I wanted to sometimes say, well, my parents had a big fight, but it's not because they're gay or they're bad parents. They just had a big fight and I'm upset. <laughs> That's okay. So what are the kind of things that the um, the subjects of your film, you've got four kids, Ebony, Gus, Matt and... Um, Graham. <laughs> Graham. Yeah. Graham. So what kind of things are they really concerned with? Sure. So, um, well, let's start with Graham. So Graham is 11 year old, years old and he was actually one of the first children in New South Wales to be adopted under the new laws that allowed same-sex couples to adopt in 2010. And him and his brother have two gorgeous dads, Matt and Pete. Um, and because of, you know, he had a first family and that he's an adopted child, he had trouble learning to read uh, and speaking until he was in in his new environment with his dad and so the film is really for him it's about this journey of him learning to read um, which is something that we all have to do in our lives and and because of his family background I suppose um, that's been a harder challenge for Graham Um, at the same time the family decide to move to Fiji which you know, complicates things a little bit more. It does. And in Australia, like the family are completely out all the time. And, you know, of course they walk down the street holding hands, the dads. Um, but in Fiji, they decide to sort of put the interests of the kids first and, and they ask the kids to be um, more silent about what their family is. Um, so it's lots of complications there. So it's not culturally acceptable in Fiji. But mm. then in order to make that part of the documentary, you yourself would have had to go to Fiji. So I think that's, you know, something worth talking about. How long were you in Fiji for? And how did you kind of hide the fact that you were making a documentary called Gaby Baby in Fiji where it's not socially acceptable to be gay parents? Sure. I mean, yeah, it was hard. And, and I think it was interesting because I've been filming with the family actually for a couple, uh, maybe a year or two. And then I decided to go on a holiday to India. (laughs) And on the day before I left for India, I was talking to Pete, who's Graham's dad, and they were like, oh, we're going to move to Fiji. And I was like, you can't move to Fiji. I'm in the (laughs) middle of filming you in a documentary. And so I actually um, had to make this decision to come back early. And I moved to Fiji with them instead of going to India and um, lived with them in their house for about a month. And I always come down to this. I think all the families are so brave to have someone follow them around for, you know, years and in some time, sometimes live with them. I mean, I don't think there are many families that would do that. Um, so I think they deserve a medal. Absolutely. But then again, would you rather, would you trust someone to make a documentary about you if they didn't actually know you quite intimately? I guess that's another question worth asking so how do you actually kind of build that trust with these families because you know especially when you approach them did they immediately want to be part of the documentary did they take some convincing do you have to check things that you've shot with them to say you know are you okay with this being public yeah um 
you know, it's a slow process and I think that that's probably the biggest challenge of making documentaries is gaining someone's trust and the trust um, is about them trusting you to represent them correctly in, in a final product um, and, you know, I think the biggest thing is actually just to sit down and listen to people and often share things about yourself that maybe you you, you wouldn't share with everyone Um I can't expect someone to share their deepest secrets with me if I'm not going to share them with, with them. Um, and I think that that's sort of like a general rule for documentary filmmaking. Um, I sort of take the consent process incredibly, um, you know, not, not lightly. And I think that maybe, you know, families feel that. They feel your sincerity around it. And it's a huge amount of trust. At some point you have to go, you have to trust me and the type of person I am and go from there. And it's turned it into a beautiful film, so good thing you got that trust. And we'll hear a track in a moment that is uh, in the credits. Very, very good choice of track, Sydney <laughs> Darlings. Please introduce it. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's a client liaison song, and, and we were very excited to put this song in in the end. I think halfway through um, listening to it almost every day, you know, we were like, oh, I think I think it needs. To, it's like the anthem of the film, and the themes in the in the in the in the lyrics are incredibly on par with the themes in the film. Um, but it's also sort of got an '80s um, backbeat to it, which um, you know, I'm an '80s baby, and um, we love music from that era. <laughs> You shine so lyrically Please not be my own And like my woes predictably Cause I walk with difference To sing my song with pride There's nothing left in me to find But what I feel inside Not about the feeling Cause feelings they just need to grow
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI. My guest is Maya Newell. She is the director of Gaby Baby. And that song just there was the, the, the credits track for the film. God, those credits rolled on and on. And I guess it was because you had a lot of people who were really interested in making this a possibility. Yeah, um, we did. We made a conscious effort to put every single name of all the people who supported our crowdfunding campaign um, in 2012, just because, you know, when you're a first-time filmmaker like me and Charlotte, the producer, um, you know, like large funding bodies don't necessarily know who you are, so they're not going to trust you to execute a film. And so we went out there and we decided to raise, we raised $100,000 before anyone else put any money in. And we wanted to acknowledge how, um, you know, how amazing it was that all those people um, came to the party and believed in this film before anyone else did. Um, it was, yeah, I mean, it was a hilarious crowdfunding campaign. We went to the most extreme efforts to try and get the attention of people. And I've got one hilarious story, which is that, um, so at the beginning of our campaign, we decided to go to into the Q&A audience on ABC. I recall that. That's where I um, recognised you from. <laughs> and I had this question and I think... Um, there was Penny Wong on the in on the panel and Barnaby Joyce, and I put up my hand and my question got selected, which was amazing. Which was about growing up in a same-sex family and about the film. And Charlotte and I came and we we were wearing these bomber jackets, and then we like my question came up and we pulled our jackets off, <laughs> and underneath we had handmade T-shirts that had the URL of our crowdfunding campaign on the front of them, and asked this question, and it happened to be sort of triggered, uh, I suppose, some. Uh, the topic around children in same-sex families that the panel hadn't really discussed much before or thought about and so Tony just kept on going backwards and forth to us and I think in that in one night we raised like $20,000 for the film with people who just saw saw the t-shirts and and loved what we were trying to do um so yeah I mean it, it was a very innovative crowdfunding campaign with sort of anyone who had an idea we just went for it um, it involved running out outside of Sunrise with, you know, placards as well, which was just hilarious and degrading. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> um, amazing. But yeah, so we just wanted to thank all of our crowdfunding campaign supporters. So, I mean, when you were in the Q&A audience, you did bring up mostly it was about the children and sometimes they didn't even respond to the fact that it was about kids and, you know, hearing what kids have to say. It's kind of a bit more politicised and kids don't really get a say in the whole marriage equality debate. The kids of gay parents don't get a say. But I, I guess, like, one thing that keeps recurring when people are trying to justify a position against gay marriage or against marriage equality is that a man and a woman is a perfect recipe and there's, like, things that a dad can do that a mum can't do and vice versa that's going to equal a good kid in the end you know and it's going to be in the kids it should be a kid's right to have both of those parents but I mean like do you think that there are any particular things that only a dad can do or only a mum can do and and from your life growing up with two mums is there anything that you can kind of say oh I missed out on that because I didn't have a dad I mean it's just absurd and it's also incredibly disrespectful to all of the children who are raised by single parents and grandparents or, you know, all sorts of families and it's not just ours that come under fire with this argument. Um, but, yeah, I mean, as long as we as a society still see, um, still are set in in strict gender stereotypes, um, which is a very backward way of thinking from my perspective, 
then maybe you you know you think you need a mum and a dad because you think that they bring distinctly different things to a child's upbringing. But in my family, you know, I grew up with two strong, powerful women who cooked and cleaned and you know did the lawnmower and took me to sport and you know patted my back when I was crying and they modeled many exciting ways to be a woman and um, I think that the sooner our society moves you know thinks about gender in a more fluid way and opens up the world for men and women who want to be feminine and masculine um, or you know and or both at the same time um, then I think that, you know, we're going to have a much more accepting and tolerant society. Um, children in same-sex families will benefit from those ideas opening up along with many other people around the world. I guess you would have been pretty excited around the time of Mardi Gras when an ad came out and it it's uh, its tagline was, think of the child, because, I mean, clearly you love thinking of oh. the child. Oh, that got me so angry. Yeah. So what, mean, what, was, what was the reality behind the campaign? Yeah, I mean, you know, oh, that particular, so David Gam- Van Gend, yeah. Um, From the act- Australian Marriage Forum, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, on Monday, his house was vandalised and someone wrote bigot on the side of his house, which was, anyway, that was in, in news. As um, a doctor, he's got a one-star rating on Google, I noticed this morning. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, I mean, I just, I think that it's sort of so absurd. So the ad depicted a child... Um, in their stroller being pushed by two men and she was crying and it said equality for adults what about equality for children and you know it's just absurd I mean if you were really thinking of the children you would turn to all of the hundreds and thousands of of children who are growing up in same-sex families now and you would ask them what they think and that's what our film is doing so I hope that David Van Gen has the chance to watch the film. We'd like to, you know, give him a formal invitation when the film comes near him. Another formal invitation you're going to be giving out is to the Australian Parliament. So how are you going to wrangle that? Are they going to be able to watch Gaby Baby sometime soon? Yeah, we're very excited. I mean, you know, five years ago when we started making this film, I did not think that we would be releasing it at the time that potentially our Parliament will be debating this issue um, around marriage equality. Um, so... In the coming months, we've organised with the Parliamentary Friendship Group, which is a bipartisan group to support LGBTI issues in federal parliament, um, and they will be hosting a screening of Gaby Baby in August, um, which will be very exciting. And yeah, I just can't wait to give pol- our politicians um, a new angle on a debate that maybe they've been talking about for a long time. Awesome. So as a tool of social change, you've made a documentary, not just not just as a documentary to stand alone, but also for use potentially within classrooms or for teachers to actually understand where where gay kids, gay kids of gay parents are kind of coming from. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, in making this film, it came from a place of wanting to improve um, the lives of children growing up in same-sex families and more generally to, you know, give other people a better understanding of them and um, yeah we'd really like to um, have the film used as a study resource in schools and we'll be sort of developing plans to make that happen rolling out next year. Now the next song that we've got today that you've brought in is by Nils Fram who is a fantastic composer. Uh, Which one do we have? Keep I think and this is really a dedication to uh, my producer, Charlotte Mars, who's also um, a very good friend. And I, I, think it, I think it's a really wonderful thing. So we're both 
27. We went to uni at University of Technology together. And I think it's a very unusual coupling where we're realising to have two uh, producer-director team who are the same age and kind of just having fun and, and rolling with it. And, um, yeah, she loves this song. And this is the opening song in the trailer of our film. Um, this is for you, Charlotte. Out of the box. Meet people through their music. On FBI.
So uh, my annual, my guest man out of the box today. You grew up with two dancing queens, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I grew up with lesbian mums and I couldn't get out of this without playing some ABBA. <laughs> um, it was it was the pact you had to make to come on the show. <laughs> okay, so you, you didn't grow up in a normal kind of house necessarily then. You grew up with two mums in, yeah. in the inner west. So yeah, what was the situation? Right. So, um, I mean, you know, I suppose it was a different kind of upbringing in some ways when I was... Um, you know, from the age of one to three or four, I grew up in a big lesbian share house, which was pretty um, fun from memories. I mean, we had one of the memories that I have is just sort of like waking up in the morning on the weekend and doing the rounds and jumping in bed and playing monsters with Barbara and Jane and then, you know, jumping in their next bed and having tea with Carol and Caroline and, you know, popping in back to my mum's and you know, I think that there's an element to the gay community, well, at least um, when I was growing up, um, which is a, it's a big community. And, and while I had two mums, I still I had a big extended family, um, of which are still my extended family, um, and will all be coming on Friday night to the premiere of the film festival, which is kind of terrifying. That's going to be so fun. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we probably packed out the cinema just with, with that crowd. So when you were growing up, did you ever have a moment that you realised, hey, having two mums isn't the norm? Yeah, um, you know, I think there's a really interesting story that, that my mum tells me now and it was probably when I was about five or so and she said we went into the butcher and and, and walked in and she just leant over the counter and was like, oh, can I just get some offcuts for for the dog? And the butcher was like, oh, you know, aren't you getting any chops for your man tonight? <laughs> and Liz said in that moment she just decided that she didn't really want to have that conversation with that guy right at that moment. And so she just replied, oh, he doesn't eat meat much. And I looked up, to her, look up, looked up at the butcher and said, Donna's not a man, I have two lesbian mums. <laughs> And I just picked up on that on that nuance of her sort of being reluctant to out herself. And she said that in that moment she, she realised that she maybe had a responsibility to, you know, be proud and be and be out when in front of me because she was teaching me that there was something, there was a reason to hide our families. Um, and I think that lots of children growing up in same-sex families would have had, you know, instances like that. You know, it's not overly um, traumatising, but it's just something that you learn to do. And... When you were at school, I mean, I remember having, you know, Mother's Days and you'd go and pick a present or you'd make some craft for your mum and you have Father's Days. Did you ever have any awkward Father's Day situations or were your, was your school really um, up to scratch with that kind of stuff? You know, in making this film, lots of people write to us and, and there's been a number of situations where, yeah, kids have had to make a Father's Day. I think one of one of the little boys from one of the girls in the film, he, um, he was made to make a, a Father's Day card and, and brought it back. And his mums were like, what? Like, why, why did you make our child make, make this card? And it says on it, and it says, to the best dad in the world. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I had a really wonderful time in high school. And I think that actually a lot of the teachers at my school happened to be gay, which was lovely. And I was sort of, I can't, I can't remember any, any, any terrible moments from the teacher's side like that. We've got a track to take next. And it's a bit of a throwback to your childhood. So why did you want to bring a Sinead O'Connor track on today? Um, so this is hilarious. I think, you know, when you asked me to pick out some tracks, I just had 
um, a little flashback from this um, Hi8 video that we have from me when I was about four years old with a sheet tied to my head because I had a fantasy of having long hair and my parents cut me this terrible mullet when I was that age (laughs) and I was so horrified that I tied this sheet to my head for about six months um and I'm singing this song like like lip like lip syncing it um and so I just thought it was very appropriate (laughs) on out of the box on FBI Maya Newell's my guest today and I'm I'm Ash Bertabez On FBI.
listen to FBR 94.5 that was CW Stone King it's the first track of his album it's Jungle Blues and it was brought in by my guest on Out of the Box today Maya Newell who is the director of a film called Gaby Baby which is premiering this Friday at Sydney Film Festival and uh that particular track why well not that particular track that particular artist why him yeah I mean you know I, I really love CW Stone King but um I suppose significantly his father um, Billy Marshall Stone King is a very long time friend and I suppose creative companion and mentor um, for a lot of my films. Um, and I just wanted to give a men- special mention to him. You know, originally we, we met when I won him as a prize, um, oh. his, his screenwriting um, course um, when he was working at AFTRS. Um, and 
I was making a film called Richard, uh, the most interestingest person I've ever met, which was uh, a film I made when I was 17 at film school. Um, and it's about this man called Richard Blackie, who is a toy collector who lived in Petersham. Um, you walked into his shop and he had toys just covering the ceiling and the walls. Um, and I happened to film him at a time when he was overcoming a lot of sort of financial pressure um, and mental health um, problems and he was having to sell these creatures of which he'd shared and made his life and the story is really a, a you know it's a it's almost like a, a you know a love letter to this man who um, unfortunately passed away very shortly after I was making the film so and Billy Billy was a, a very um, integral part of that storytelling. So, yeah, it sounds like he was a bit of a mysterious character. So do you know much about his background before he was in Petersham? Um, I actually don't know too much. He was he was very mysterious. Um, I know that, you know, he had had um, plastic surgery to look like Michael Jackson um, and used to work as a Michael Jackson impersonator, um, which was sort of fascinating. Um, he also collected mini chihuahuas. Um, so he had about 10 of them running around the shop every <laughs> every time you went over. Having a face like Michael Jackson probably would have become a problem for him later on after Michael Jackson was starting to get called Wacko Jacko, I'm assuming. Do you think that's why he, you know, kind of, I guess, he hid away from the world a little bit maybe? Yeah, I think that he was deeply affected by the allegations against Michael Jackson and it definitely added to, you know, he actually loved Michael Jackson. He had a deep appreciation and passion for the music and I think he felt very let down by him um and and that's that's sort of a part of the story yeah what was his toy shop like aesthetically like what kind of things were in there oh well he used to he used to brag that he he had the largest um he was the collector of pop culture in the southern hemisphere and so he you know he had life-size Marilyn Monroe's and um you know a train collection and um you know a robot connect collection that sort of covered one whole wall um, you know, really, you know, every childhood fantasy had some small dark corner of which it inhabited in his in his shop. It and was you pretty incredible. You would have spent a lot of time there because you were making a documentary about him. What kind of time were we talking about? Were you kind of partly living there almost? Yeah, it was probably, you know, for about three months or so. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're talking like every day. And, and before that, I had a lot of intrigue to his shop because I used to walk past because I live very close by. And I used to always be a little bit curious but kind of scared like I didn't really want to go in there and then when I was given my documentary assignment in film school I just decided to go in yeah it and was I your license to walk in and engage yeah, I think lots of people put Richard in the too hard basket or you know were kind of a bit afraid or uncertain because he was very eccentric um and I think that you know I, I actually sort of loved that side of him did and you become friends yeah we were, we were very good friends yeah so in that case, when he passed away, were you finished with the documentary at that point? Um, no. So he passed away about halfway through like when I'd been filming. And I felt I stopped making the film for a long time. It was um, very distressing. Also, I think I was very young and maybe not so um, didn't have, you know, the capability to kind of be able to deal with such big issues at that age. Um, but I ended up editing the film almost as a mourning process and, and to spend more time with Richard. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was my first documentary. Um, it's also, you know, probably the most one of the most heartfelt and, and the film that really made me want to make films. 
So that was Billy Marshall Stone King, the executive producer that kind of encouraged you to keep going with the project after very much after so. his death. Yeah. And and Billy, you know, has continued to come uh, come on board and, and act as a sort of creative consultant for a number of the films that I've made, including Gaby Baby, um, and including uh, a short film called Two. Awesome. So let's talk about two in that case. You were you're in London for some time, working with a production company, and they they set you a bit of a task. And what was that task? Yeah. So um, the task was to research adult babies. And for those of you out there who do not know what an adult baby is, um, it's a certain it's actually infantilism, and it, and it's um, when adults decide that they want to regress into being a child again, and um, cocoon themselves in, in that safety and secureness of what it is to be a child when you don't have to deal with the big scary world around you and I think that, that there's that element which actually made me strangely like connected with this, this, this very bizarre idea because I think that at its very core it was something that we can all relate to um, so I went out and I spoke to lots of adult babies there's actually thousands of them all around the world um, some adult baby media even comes out of Sydney, so they're all around. Um, and I met an, a number of um, of people and ended up, after a long time, a long friendship with, with one man called Julian, ended up making a film about him. And so how do you become friends with an adult baby? Do you have to kind of do baby-like things or <laughs> can you can you just go get a coffee and he might be wearing it? Yeah, well, well, you know, Julian is the man and April was the baby um, and ah. I sort of hung out with Julian. And um, the film is really, it's him going to celebrate his um, second birthday for the 52nd time. Um, as he goes and spends a weekend at an adult baby nursery where he's being pampered by a nanny. And um, the film is, I suppose, a birthday surprise. <laughs> He's turning two. I guess that, that's kind of interesting. You would have probably thought a bit about it when you were filming it. What's the kind of psychology behind that? Like, why would you want to um, infantilise yourself? Yeah, look, it's very complicated and I don't even try to explain it. <laughs> Um, but I, I know from research that there's lots of people, there's some people that, you know, really do want to be two years old. And, you know, there's, um, for some people, there's a, a sexual kind of side to it. Um, and then, you know, there's another group, I think, that just sort of do it for fun. Um, Julian quite literally wanted to be two years old. Um, and I think that life as an adult, as mentioned before, was just a bit scary sometimes. And he felt very pressured by the big world around and, and he wanted to um, go back to when life was simple and you could be comforted by your soft toy. Now that I know that's an option, I'm kind of considering it. Um, so what kind of challenges <laughs> did you have when, you, when you're when you trying to make a documentary with someone who is, is you know, occasionally April, a two-year-old child, and then occasionally Julian, a 50-something-year-old man? What do I... What, what kind of challenges? Like, how do you, oh. how do you build trust? How do you... Um, make it okay to to basically have a camera in their presence. I mean, it's kind of not necessarily something they're going to be really happy about telling the world. No, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't expect to make a film at first. It was going to, it was a radio documentary, which allowed Julian to maintain his um, ident, his sort of cover his identity. Um, and then he actually asked me to make the film because I think that 
you know, he'd been doing this for a long time and, and the world of adult babies is a very silent one. It's one that exists mostly on the internet. Um, you don't have a lot of connection with, with other people. Um, and, and, you know, I think that you connect with him like you do anyone. You know, there's lots of things that we as humans have in common. It's not just what we, um, you know, that was just a side of who Julian was. Awesome. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show today, Maya Newell. Best of luck with how Gaby Baby rolls out in cinemas later on in the year, I hear. Yes. It and will be having a general theatrical release. This is Gaby Baby, the feature film um, at probably yeah, all around Australia. So if people would like to follow up and see where they can see the film, our website is thegabyproject.com. Awesome. And definitely follow them on Facebook and Twitter and see what's what. Uh, well, we've got time for one last song and that w- will be something from your time in London when you were making that film about Julian, the adult baby, which someone just texted in saying, I saw that film, Richard. It was amazing. So <laughs> got some fans. So which, which track do we have now and why? So this is sort of unrelated to the documentary, but it's just a, a story, um, a, a song that I hold very close to my heart. I went and saw a Fleetwood Mac concert um, in London and they happen to be pretty much my favourite band in the world. So I'd love to play you all. Um, Gypsy. Thanks, Maya Newell. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI. It's Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. 